Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 13, Chapter 19. What do you think of this section of the book and its focus on military strategy? Do you enjoy the philosophical arguments or are you hoping for a change in the next part? Well, Acoustic Eels says off-topic. I heard a story on BBC News that Melbourne is having a Delta variant surge and that Melbourne just surpassed Buenos Aires, Buenos, Buenos Aires, why can't I say that? Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires, I'm like looking at this word, I'm like I don't know how to say this but I can't figure it out, just surpassed Buenos Aires as the most locked down city by number of days over the course of the pandemic, how are you doing Ander? Mississippi readers, hope you're well Ander, thanks for keeping us going all year long, hope all's well says FDLP one uh i'm doing good and yeah we've got we've had a hell of a lockdown um over the last two years uh we've i think we spent more days locked down than not locked down uh, it'd be close at least i'm having a beer at the moment um but we're kind of celebrating here in melbourne tonight because uh, we've kind of i don't know We've done this huge lockdown, and it hasn't really worked. We've still had this surge, even though we've been in a really strict lockdown for like a few months now. Uh, the cases are still spreading, and I think it's just because Delta variant is so contagious. I don't know. don't know how it's still spreading so rapidly when we're all literally just staying at home. But it is, so I think our government has kind of gone, oh, look... We've just put these people through the strictest lockdowns in the world. Uh, and now this surge is happening. And what are we going to do? Lockdown harder? So they've kind of done a bit of a swerve. And just gone, alright, everyone get double dosed and then you can go out. So we, we about a month ago there was a real change of the narrative where it was like... It was no longer like we're going to stay locked down until there's zero cases... It went to like, we're going to all get double dosed and then just go about our lives as normal. So I think that's kind of the plan, but it just doesn't sit well with everyone now because, I don't know, We, we it feels like we've just been locked down for no reason. I'm sure that it would have surged much worse if we weren't locked down, but still it just kind of seems like it was for nothing. Tonight is the official end of our lockdown though. So um, I can hear people outside all night, you know, honking their horns and <laughs> I can hear some very rowdy kids down the street. So we're celebrating. We are celebrating. Uh, but yeah, no, I do appreciate you uh, checking in. Uh, oops, sorry. Clicked away. Part two... We finished, says Twisted Every Way. We're at 84% completion. As far as the tactical chapters go, this one was okay. Tolstoy has spent a lot of time on this last war. I honestly wonder how long we are going to spend on the retreat. I'd like to hear what's become of Pierre on this retreat and get back to our how our fun characters will recover from the Moscow situation. Yeah, good call. Um, I... One bit of the book that stands out in my memory uh, 
is Pierre's kind of uh, journey uh, during the retreat. You know, how he gets kind of all mixed up in this part of the military campaign. Uh, What happens with prisoners of war when you're retreating? Uh, It's an exciting bit of the book too, if I recall. Um, So that's cool. Mississippi Reader says, I liked this tactical chapter. It's a fine line for me between enjoying the chess part of the war and feeling like Tolstoy is dragging on, but this chapter was great. Um, Rye Bread Eggs thought differently, says, nope, do not like it. If this was section one of the book, I would have been a did not finish by day 19. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's a book that's like that. I think it drags at parts and it picks up in other parts and the lulls make the exciting bits more enjoyable, I think. But when you're reading it day at a time, the the slow bits do seem very slow. Um, yeah, but I think the way it sits in your memory is what's great about reading the book like this. Like having spent a year in the book, it's kind of like you lived and breathed it. And um, I don't know, it's like the memory mingles in with everything else that happened that year kind of thing. It's like it was part of your life for a while. Uh, And not many books would really sit in that place, I don't think. Book 14 is entitled 1812. Chapter 1 goes like this. The Battle of Borodino with the occupation of Moscow that followed it and the flight of the French without further conflicts is one of the most instructive phenomena in history. All historians agree that the external activity of states and nations in their conflicts with one another is expressed in wars and that as a direct result of greater or less success in war, the political strength of states and nation increases or decreases. Strange as may be the historical account of how some king or emperor having quarreled with another collects an army, fights his enemy's army, gains a victory by killing three, five or ten thousand men and subjugates a kingdom and an entire nation of several millions. All the facts of history, as far as we know, confirm the truth of the statement that the greater or lesser success of one army against another is the cause or at least an essential indication of an increase or decrease in the strength of the nation even though it is unintelligible why the defeat of an army a hundredth part of a nation should oblige the whole nation to submit an army gains a victory and at once the rights of the conquering nation have increased to the detriment of the defeated. An army has suffered defeat, and at once a people loses its rights in proportion to the severity of the reverse, and if its army suffers a complete defeat, the nation is quite subjugated. So according to history, it has been found from the most ancient times, and so it is to our day. All Napoleon's wars serve to confirm this rule. In proportion to the defeat of the Austrian army, Austria loses its rights, and the rights and the strength of France increases. The victories of the French at Jena and Orstadt destroy the independent existence of Prussia. But then, in 1812 the French gain a victory near Moscow, 
Moscow is taken, and after that, with no further battles, it is not Russia that ceases to exist, but the French army of 600,000, and then Napoleonic France itself. The strain, to strain the facts, to fit the rules of history, to say that the field of battle at Borodino remained in the hands of the Russians, or that after Moscow there were other battles that destroyed Napoleon's army, is impossible. After the French victory at Borodino, there was no general engagement, nor any there that were at all serious, yet the French army ceased to exist. What does this mean? If it were an example taken from the history of China, we might say that it was not an historic phenomenon, which is the historian's usual expedient when anything does not fit their standards. If the matter concerned some brief conflict in which only a small number of troops took part, we might treat it as an exception. But this event occurred before our father's eyes, and for them it was a question of the life or death of the fatherland, and it happened in the greatest of all known wars. The period of the campaign of 1812 from the Battle of Borodino to the expulsion of the French proved that the winning of a battle does not produce a conquest, and is not even an invariable indication of conquest. It proved that the force which decides the fate of people lies not in the conquerors, nor even in armies and battles, but in something else. The French historians describing the condition of the French army before it left Moscow affirm that all was in order in the Grand Army except the cavalry, the artillery, and the transport. There was no forage for the houses or the cattle. Forage, sorry. That was a <clears throat> misfortune no one could remedy. <clears throat> Excuse me. For the peasants of the district burned their hay rather than let the French have it. The victory gained did not bring the usual results because the peasants, Carp and Vlas, who after the French had evacuated Moscow, drove in their carts to pillage the town and in general personally failed to manifest any heroic feelings and the whole innumerable multitude of such peasants did not bring their hay to Moscow for the f high price of off offered them, but burned it instead. <clears throat> Let us imagine two men who have come out to fight a duel with rapiers according to all the rules of the art of fencing. The fencing has gone on for some time, suddenly one of the combatants feeling himself wounded and understanding that the matter is no joke but concerns his life, throws down his rapier and seizing the first cudgel that comes to hand begins to brandish it. Then let us imagine that the combatant who is sensibly employed the best and simplest means to attain his end was at the same time influenced by traditions of chivalry and desired to conceal the facts of the case, insisted that he had gained his victory with the rapier according to all the rules of art. One can imagine what confusion and obscurity would result from such an account of the duel. The fencer who demanded a contest according to the rules of fencing was the French army. His opponent who threw away, threw away the rapier and snatched up a cudgel was the Russian people. Those who try to explain the matter according to the rules of fencing are the historians who have described the event. After the burning of Smolensk, a war began which did not follow any pre previous traditions of war. The burning of towns and villages, the retreats after battles, the blow dealt at Borodino and the renewed retreat, the burning of Moscow, the capture of marauders, the seizure of transports and the guerrilla war were all departures from the rules. 
Napoleon felt this, and from the time he took up the correct fencing attitude in Moscow, and instead of his opponent's rapier saw a cudgel raised above his head, he did not cease to complain to Kutuzov and to the Emperor Alexander that the war was being carried on contrary to all the rules, as if there were any rules for killing people. In spite of the complaints of the French as to the non-observance of the rules, in spite of the fact that to some highly placed Russians it seemed rather disgraceful to fight with a cudgel, and they wanted to assume a pose en court or en tierce, according to all the rules, and to make an adroit thrust en prime, and so on. The cudgel of the people's war was lifted with all its menacing and majestic strength, and without consulting anyone's tastes or rules, and regardless of anything else, it rose and fell with stupid simplicity. But consistently, and belaboured the French, till the whole invasion had perished. And it is well for a people who do not, as the French did in 1813, salute according to all the rules of art and presenting the hilt of their rapier gracefully and politely handed to their magnanimous conqueror. But at the moment of trial, without asking what rules others have adopted in similar cases, simply and easily pick up the first cudgel that comes to hand and strike with it till the feeling of resentment and revenge in their soul yields to a feeling of contempt and compassion. Alrighty, there we go. I liked that. I really liked that metaphor about how, you know, the French were abiding by the the proper rules of war, and the Russians were just bludgering them with a, a hammer. Um... Very cool. All right. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.